All right, all right. Ooh. Mic check. Awesome. <laughs> hey, everybody. Good to see you tonight. Find yourself a nice, comfy chair. Gosh, these chairs are so much nicer than the chairs I had growing up. We had like no cushion and we had longer sermons. We just, we got it made here in the World Prayer Center. Um, <laughs> if I haven't had the privilege of meeting you, my name is Eddie Hoagland. I'm the pastor of Young Adults here at New Life Church. And um, if I haven't met you, would love to meet you at the end of the service. Also, at the end of the service, I'm going to walk you guys through um, the fact that we are launching crew again for the spring or winter, whatever we're calling <laughs> this season. Um, yeah, from February through May, we're going to have crew again, so I will walk you through all the details of that. Then at the end of the service, we'll put up a QR code, and then you can sign up, and you can join a crew this very night. It can happen. It can happen to you, too, tonight. So, um, so I'll explain exactly what that means here, um, here in just a few minutes. But tonight, I want to start by telling you the story of a man named Roland Hussey. Here's what this guy looked like. Amazing. He was born, <laughs> he was born to a, a family that lived in Nantucket Island, Massachusetts in 1822. And uh, our guy Roland, he was an entrepreneur at heart. He just, he had that business kind of thing going for him. And at a very young age, he moves out to California to start his first business with his brother, um, and it was a dry goods store. This is what he did. And so he launches his first store, and then shortly after, the store fails. It's just like, eh, did this, this did not go well. Um, they didn't make enough money. They closed shop in California. Then Roland moves back to the East Coast. And then get this. He then opens another store, and it fails. Then he opens another store, and it fails. <laughs> then he opens a fourth store, and it fails. <laughs> it's like, that's a lot of stores, you know? I mean, I, don't, I, I didn't track exactly how many years it is, but it takes a while to open a store. That's not like an easy thing to do. So he does that four times and fails at it. This is the point where you know his friends were kind of like, Maybe the stores aren't failing. You know, like, maybe you have something to do with the failure. Maybe, maybe the failure is more surrounding you. And so uh, our guy Roland, look at him. He's so discouraged at this point of his life. That's probably when they took the picture. He's like, four stores. Uh, um, <laughs> and, uh, and then, but here's what he does. He starts studying his failure. He starts seeing the things that had happened in every single one of those stores, and then he decides to open another one. But this time, he doesn't just study his failure, he also starts studying the market. And he starts picking up on things that the, the, the market was calling for that no one really was meeting that need. So he launches his fifth dry goods store in New York City this time, in 1858, on the corner of 6th Avenue and 14th Street, and he starts asking, um, as he starts selling dry goods, he comes up with this idea. He's like, what if I just buy the building next to me and I acquire whatever business they have and I add that department to my store? And then he bought the next store next to him and he starts buying all the stores around him, adding all these departments to his stores. And he starts doing things like themed exhibits and uh, illuminated window displays and even a chance to meet Santa Claus himself 
as this guy in his fifth store finally gets to a, a level of success in naming this store after his last name, which is Macy. And this is the beginning of, of the story of Macy's. And it, this, this store outlives him. He died uh, some years after that, and it just took off from there. But even then, when he started Macy's in New York City, uh, he sold like 11 bucks on the first day which is the equivalent here today of, of our currency of $300 in the first day of business. That's like not a great sign. So his, his, his life is full of these moments where you would just say failure, 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 and yet we're talking about one of the largest stores in American history. Um, the department store, what this became was such a success. The great business owners of the last century aren't people who just succeeded. They're people who failed. And they, they failed a lot. And w the reason they succeeded is not because they always did the right thing. It's because they had a specific perspective on their failure that allowed them to get to a different place. And I'm convinced that one of the greatest things in the way of your growth and your walk with Jesus is your failure. There's something in the way. And, and really, it's not your failure. Really, what I'm getting at here today, it's your perspective about your failure. The way you view your own failure is in the way of what Jesus wants to do in your life. And, and as I came to Tuesday, like as the week progressed towards Tuesday night, I just sensed it in my heart. I feel like this is a topic, what we're going to get at tonight. This is a topic where um, you've maybe given up some ground that we need to reclaim tonight. There's some things that you would just say, okay, I, I didn't even notice this happened, but I've given this ground over to the enemy and Jesus is here tonight and he wants you to hear him when he says, I have something I want to do in this specific topic about your failure, about my failure, all the things that we have that we know we've, bl we've blown it. We, we aren't perfect. We aren't a success. We wouldn't view ourselves in that way. And what you'll find in scripture is a process of viewing failure accurately and then entering into the incredible, powerful place of God's grace and that is not just a Christian platitude. That's going to get really real here tonight, what I mean by that. Um, but the way you view your failure will determine your next, step, your next step as you look at your life and you have your stories of failure. Do you see failed dry goods stores? Do you see that store that closed or do you see a Macy's in the making? And that's your choice, and that's the space we're going to into. Is it just, oh, I just see the failure, or do I see something awesome that God's up to that's just in the making right now? It's just not there yet. And this is why tonight we are looking at the story of Jesus and Simon Peter. Jesus and Simon Peter. I am so excited to dive into this story, um, but first I want to pray and submit this time to God. Father, this is... This is your message because it comes from your book, and it comes from your revelation. And so, Lord, I pray for those who have a heavy heart tonight, that they would sense you lift them up, um, that they would sense their, their burdens start to lighten here tonight, that it would already be lightened just by being in your presence, worshiping you, God. And for uh, those of us who have something we've tried to shove into the deepest, darkest corner of our hearts, um, we pray that this would come into the light here tonight. That we would be people of the light, knowing that when you draw things into the light, it's because you love us and there's something good that you want us to have. And so, Lord, we pray against all the things that are in the way of the good thing you want to do in our lives. We ask that you would speak, 
and we give you thanks for the fact that you will speak. We give you thanks, God, for that. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, Jesus and Simon Peter. Now, to truly see how Jesus changes Peter's life, um, we're going to have to look at a couple different stories, not just one story, which has been more what we've been doing in the series, but uh, here we're going to zoom out a bit more to, to really get a sense of what do we learn about Jesus and Simon Peter. So let's just zoom back to the beginning of where Peter is introduced in the scriptures. Peter's one of the 12 disciples called by Jesus, and, and he is a fisherman, and he's an uneducated fisherman, specifically in regards to the law. So this isn't someone who was like a churchy person at that time, but Jesus is like, yeah, you come follow me and become part of my like main group. Uh, this is someone who was not that. So what that teaches us is the background that, that we all have. You have a background, I have a background, you have an upbringing, I have an upbringing. That's part of your story, but it's not the most important part about you. Um, that's not what Jesus is looking at. He's not saying, okay, the people who grew up in church, yeah, I want to do this with them. And the people who didn't grow up in church, oh, I, I'm not sure what I'm going to do. That's not how Jesus thinks. Um, he's not saying, hey, if you've done all these things right, then I can use you. That's not how he works. He's not looking for people who are perfectly ready. He's looking for the right person. And what makes the right person right is their willingness to believe in Jesus and to put their faith in him. And if you're willing to follow Jesus, your background just it doesn't matter as much at that point. Jesus can always do so much. It's his power in us, acknowledging our past, our story, but then you just start seeing what he's going to do. And, and that's Peter's story. He's not someone you'd be like, oh, that's the guy Jesus should call. Um, but he does believe and he does follow Jesus. And Peter's story is a story of ups and downs. Um, he will end up doing some amazing things in Scripture, but he also has many, many times all throughout the Gospels where he does some not amazing things, where he's just not the awesome person in the story. And uh, I, I actually think this is why he's so relatable, is because it, it kind of jumps out of the pages of you're like, wow, this, these really were just people, like in these stories. Yes, all the 12 disciples, all the people that Jesus is traveling with, calling to follow him, the 70, I mean, there's just all these people around him. They're all just people. They're like you and they're like me. And uh, that's why we can relate to Peter. It's like, yeah, I, I get that. I get that feeling of like, I'm a hot mess too. And Peter's a hot mess. So I feel like that's a, a connection that we have. And um, Peter's life story is an incredibly clear picture of what this series is about. How do we get to the place of holiness in humanity? How do we get to the place where in our humanity, God's holiness can show up. And Peter's going to show us a few lessons, which I think are extremely helpful as we try to walk this out, how to have God's holiness in our humanity. So here's where I want to start tonight. And uh, at first it might not make sense, but I'll show you why it makes sense with the life of Peter here in a second. But we're going to start by understanding our strengths and weaknesses. You have to understand your strengths and weaknesses. We often view our strengths and weaknesses as opposites today, like I'm good at this, and then that means I'm terrible at this. But I actually think that what Peter shows us is that the two are connected. Um, they're not like completely separate things. They're, they're the same thing. They're just, it's the, the different side of the same coin is what he's going to show us. But our culture today tells you that weaknesses are, are your Achilles tendon. Like they will destroy you. So don't have any and destroy all your weaknesses. Stop being human is what our culture is telling us. Figure out ways 
to get rid of all your weaknesses. Be strong and only strong. And if you're ever weak, make sure your boss never sees you. Make sure like no one ever sees you be weak if you ever want to do anything in life. And what that creates is this incredible pressure of culture on us. Just being like, you can't be weak, which is part of being human. Like, it's the message of saying, don't be human, and it's not for our good. And what you will find here in the, in the way of following Jesus, you're going to find rest from that nonsense. You're going to be able to enter into a space and say, yeah, I have strengths, I have weaknesses, but I can rest in that. I don't have to, like, go at my weaknesses saying, you got, I got to get rid of all this now. I have so much homework. I have so much work from the Bible because I can't have any weaknesses. That's not what the Bible teaches. And it's really awesome. It's one of the things that could be lifted off you here tonight if you would understand that your weaknesses are part of the limitations that you have as a human. So we have to understand what exactly we're getting at. Check this out with Peter. He has strengths and weaknesses, and, and you will see that his weaknesses aren't his failures. Um, his weaknesses often lead him to failure. But in the same way for us, we're going to get to true failure here in a second, what it means to sin against God, to fail God. We're going to get to that in a second. But before that, we just have to enter into the space of, of asking ourselves, what do I see in me in regards to my strengths and weaknesses? So here is how it plays out with Peter. I'm going to show you both his strength and weakness in one chapter of the Bible, Matthew chapter 16. I'm going to show you it to you in the positive, and then only a few verses later, it shows up in the negative. So first, let's start in the positive, uh, starting in verse 13. It says this, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? That's talking about himself. Son of Man is a term of authority. Who do people say that Jesus is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Then Jesus brings it in here. Now it's not just a news story. He's, he's actually getting to something personal when he says, but what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Now, I just want you to notice, he asked that question to all of them, right? The disciples, he asked them a question. They all kind of answer the first part. Then he says, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And the scripture just tells us, Simon Peter answered. What you'll find so many times in the New Testament is there's a question that goes to many people. And then Peter's just like, and I'll answer it. Like, I'll be the first person to open his mouth and say something. Um, and here, the, you'll see that he's, he's always just ready to talk. He's one of those people that, like, you're figuring out what Peter's thinking as he's figuring it out because you're hearing his thoughts, like, in real time. It's all happening. As it comes out of the mouth, you're like, oh, there's a thought, <laughs> right? Like, it's not spending time in here. It's just going to come out right away. And he answers, and he says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. This is, this is such an important moment in the, in the Gospels. This is... Peter confessing that Jesus isn't just a prophet. Jesus isn't just a, a good teacher or a rabbi to the people of Israel. When he says that he's the Messiah, this is such a huge deal to the Jewish culture. They had been waiting for hundreds of years for God to send the anointed one, the Messiah, to save his people. And Peter's saying, hey, I've been hanging out with you, Jesus, and it's very clear to me that you are that. You're the Messiah. You're the one that, that has come from heaven to earth to save us as his people. And Jesus replies, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. Peter is listening to the work of God. 
he's not paying attention only with his human eyes. He's picking up on things that God is doing in the spiritual realm, and that's what he's confessing in that moment. And that's, that's his strength because he's the one willing to just say it. <laughs> he, he's, he's willing to step into that. But then just a few verses later, and I mean just a few verses later, let's jump down to verse 21. This is what happens. <laughs> From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, which, I don't know, rebuking Jesus just doesn't seem like a great idea, Peter, but here he goes. Um, never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. What I want you to see is what Matthew just pointed out by connecting the two stories and showing us that it's actually the same trait inside of Peter, but in one moment it's a good thing, in another it's a bad thing. Now first let me explain, why does Jesus call Peter Satan? That's kind of a super intense thing going on here in this passage. Um, Peter is not possessed by Satan in this moment. There's not a demon possession happening. Here's what Jesus is saying, because Peter tells Jesus, he's like, I don't want you to go to Jerusalem and die. But Jesus is the Messiah who came from heaven and earth to die to save his people. That was the mission Jesus had on his mind. And when Peter's saying, no, I don't want that to happen, he's in effect saying, I don't want the plan of God to happen. I don't want the story of salvation to take effect. That is not the agenda of God. That now is the agenda of Satan. Satan did not want Jesus to die on the cross. I know it looked like a victory for him, but he knew. He knew the prophecy that was spoken all the way from the Garden of Eden. He knew if he dies, I lose everything. And so Satan doesn't want Jesus to die. He wants him to just live a happy life. He doesn't want him to go to Calvary to die. And so what Peter's doing is he's aligning with Satan's agenda. And in that sense, Jesus is saying, get behind me, you who are supporting the agenda of Satan, not the agenda of God. The will of God is that I would go to Jerusalem, that I would die on that cross, and that I would be raised on the third day to life. That's what God is doing. And in so doing that, he's saving his people. That's, that's what he's getting at when he calls him Satan. But you see it right there, all inside one chapter. He's, Peter is blessed by Jesus, and then he's rebuked by Jesus. He's scolded by Jesus. And inside the same chapter, Matthew brings up that Peter is listening to God and not to his human capacity. And then in the next story, Peter's not listening to God, and Peter's listening on merely human capacity. And it's the, it's like, what happened between verse 13 and 21? Like, what, how did that shift so much? It's because it's not two different things happening. It's a trait inside of Peter that's either leaning towards a strength or leaning towards a weak, weakness. But here's what I want you to see in the passage is Jesus isn't present in only one of those moments. Jesus is there for both these things. It's not like, oh, when he says the right thing, Jesus is like, oh, blessed are you. And then like when he says the wrong thing, he's like, I'm out. <laughs> I'm out on you. No, that's not Jesus. He, he leans in and he actually makes it a teaching moment. He says, hey, I see something in the making. I don't just see a failure. I see something that I'm, that where this is going to lead and it's going to be awesome and it's going to be for God's glory and for his good. And what I've found that, that Peter is, is showing us as we become aware of our strengths and our weaknesses is that there's a direct connection between wisdom and self-awareness. 
those things like go together. Their wisdom is the ability to live out life the way God says in a skillful way. That you're just good at life is really what wisdom is. is as decisions come your way, you have all these tools to just be good at making great decisions. That's wisdom. And there's a connection between that kind of wisdom and self-awareness. Self-awareness is so intrinsically connected to that. And I'm convinced that there are many bad decisions that come from weaknesses that are ignored. It's not the weakness that's your failure. Your weakness just means you're human. But the weakness leads to failure, and it simply leads there because you're unaware of the weakness. It's ignored. It's It's not something that's brought into your purview. And so that's what I'm trying to shine a light a bit on here today. Here's Here's a really simple way of explaining it. I'll show it to you with the trait, the human trait that we have and how that can play out as a strength or a weakness. Let's kind of start with what Peter had going for him. He was quick to speak, and I also put act in there, to quick to speak or act. Why? Because you guys remember when Jesus is about to go to the cross, when they're they're in the garden, Peter's the guy who like slices that guy's ear off. Um, Yeah, so quick, quick to act, I think also inside of Peter's personality. That's one of his traits. So as a strength, there's a readiness to defend in that, okay? Peter, even the thing that he gets rebuked for, he says it because he's saying, I don't want that bad thing to happen to someone I love. He's actually, it's a good intention. It's, it's the wrong thing to do, but it still was a good intention. He's saying, I want to defend you, Jesus. And, and that's what he does in the garden when he cuts that guy's ear off. He's defending Jesus. There's a readiness to defend, and that's a good thing. That is not a bad thing, but if, if left unchecked, it can lead to a weakness, which at times can lead towards unwise decisions. Why? Because you're not giving time to make a decision. If you're always quick to act, then you don't have time to even think things over, and you're not going to always make the, the best choice. Now, let's flip it in, in, in the other direction. Slow to speak or act. If you're slow to speak or act, and that's one of your traits as a person, your strength is you're going to be thoughtful and that's going to lead towards wisdom. You're going to be able to slow things down, ask some good questions, and then before acting, putting some structure in place on what you're going to do exactly now. But as a weakness, it could mean that you're going to be slow to act when actually what you needed to do was do something right then. Because you're, it's not inside your nature, so it becomes a weakness where what sometimes, guys, the appropriate thing to do is to say something in the moment. It's not always wrong to just be like, I'll never say anything. No, especially when it comes to defending those who are oppressed by others, the mistreatment of people. God says, you don't need to think about that one. You can just say, this is wrong and it shouldn't have happened. Okay, and so sometimes, even though if you're wise as a person, it could turn into a weakness where you're like, actually, I should have said something, but I didn't. Um, Here's just two more. Um, If you're a person who naturally would prefer less structure in life, you just, you don't like the boundaries and, and the, you know, the rules and all these things, and you would rather just like kind of live a bit more freely. Again, these aren't, this is just a neutral trait that can be a strength or a weakness. As a strength, it's really awesome. That means because you don't see a lot of structure, you pull from the palette of all things, and you have this ability to say, okay, what if I connect this to this? And that action of connecting two different ingredients in a way that's unique is called creativity. And what that does is it speaks to the human soul and you can create things through your creative muscle that compel the heart of people in such a unique way because you didn't see a box. You saw something outside the box and you were able to pull it together for people and it creates an emotive response to it. But as a weakness, that same thing that makes that uh, creative side of you come out can become a weakness where you're just less dependable 
Because if you don't like structure, if you don't like rules, then it's like, well, can I even bank on you to show up? Can I bank on you to hit the deadline? Can I bank on you to like be what I need you to be if you're going to be my friend? And so, again, it doesn't guarantee that you're not dependable. It just means you could lean in that direction. you got to be aware of it, self-awareness. And the flip is true. There's strengths and weaknesses. If you prefer more structure, if you're like, man, rules, not a problem for me. I love rules. Like, I like just knowing where I stand. I, I get up in the morning, and I make myself a bowl of rules, and I start eating rules for breakfast, and I take a rule sandwich with me. <laughs> I'm, I'm one of these people. It's okay. Um, <laughs> So if you're more structured by nature, here's one of the strengths you get to bring. You get to create safety for others. That skill set of, of creating structure, it's for the flourishing and benefit of others. That creates a safety, and that's a really awesome thing that you get to bring into your friendships, into your workplace, into your school. Wherever God's placed you, you can bring safety. But a potential weakness is that when you're sitting down with people and they're sharing what they're going through in life, uh, you might ha- might have a tendency to start working towards a structure or a solution when really what they needed is they just needed you to be there. And you going into a, like structure mode didn't, didn't help them. It didn't love them. And Jesus is so awesome at all these things. Like he's all the traits in strength. And that's why when you study how he interacts with people, I have so often I'm like, oh gosh, I need to learn that from Jesus. Because I lean towards the weak side and Jesus says, no, actually this is the calling you can know that that's a weakness, but through the power of the Spirit of Jesus, I can now step into this space as well. So you guys, God's made you the way you are. There, there are traits that he's put inside of you, and they're all neutral, and he doesn't regret it, just so you know. God's not up there in heaven being like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I made that person that way. That's, that's just not how he functions. That's why he, he, he goes to the length to say, I make you in my image. I, I've made all of you in my image. I'm, it's very good. I'm very happy with the people I've created. And he blesses you in your God-given strength. But he's also blessing you with weaknesses because they're the way that you stay dependent on him. If all God gave you was strength, why would you need him? Weaknesses are a grace of God. They, they aren't failure. They're a grace from God. Paul really gets this when he says in 2 Corinthians... But he said to me, this is Paul saying, Jesus says to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul is one of the most self-aware people you'll find in the New Testament. He's saying, when I'm weak, actually, that's, that's when I'm strong. Why? Because when I'm weak, I'm aware of my need for God. And when you're aware of your need for God, you're strong. That gives strength to you. And when I'm weak, I'm ready for the grace of God to be sufficient for me. I can hold on to that grace, and it becomes what I need for today. It's sufficient. It's enough. God becomes enough when you're weak. When I'm weak, I see how God saves, how God delivers. If you're only operating in strength, you don't realize that God's the one who steps in and he pulls you out of the thing that's, that, that's tormenting you. Like Peter, again, he's the guy who walks on water, goes to Jesus, then he starts sinking. He starts sinking and yeah, we're like, oh, Peter was just 
oh, oh, ye of little faith and all those things. Yeah, but Peter's the one who had Jesus rescue him. Peter has the encounter one-on-one with Jesus that the other guys don't. It's like if Peter had little faith in that story, I always ask, like, what what did the disciples, the other guys have? Like, no faith? I don't know. The scripture doesn't tell us. I'm just saying we always beat up the person who's out there on the water feeling weak, but what you'll find is those are the people Jesus reaches out and saves. And he gets to experience, what, was, what would it have been like to have Jesus reach into the sea and pull you out and then bring you back to the boat? Like, he, Peter's the one who gets to experience that, even though he was also operating in weakness. It isn't that God's goal is to eradicate your weaknesses. God's goal for your life is for his power to show up in your weakness. They aren't your failures. They're just your humanity. It's the place where holiness meets humanity. This is what God is getting at. He's saying, you can be human and then check out what I'm going to do in your humanity. So we want to become people who understand both our tendencies towards strength both and our tendencies towards weaknesses. And like I said, weaknesses aren't the evil thing, but many times they do lead us down a path of failure. And that's the second point here tonight is that we have to grieve sin appropriately not just grieve sin okay you have to grieve it appropriately there is a right way and there's a wrong way Um, the word sin in the original language it it means to miss the mark that's what it means so a a different way of saying that is it's failing to hit the target (laughs) that's why failure and sin often are used interchangeably because failure in regards to the things of God is sin When God says, here's my standard, and we don't hit that target, we don't hit that standard with the things that we believe in our hearts, speak with our mouth, act with our bodies, all those things, if we miss the mark, that's sin. And uh, I've I've preached on this topic before of confession and repentance, and so I'm not going to go through an exhaustive list of that whole process of what do we do as Christians when we fail? What do we do with sin? I just want to focus on one point that I think Peter teaches us, because Sadly, Peter is most known for his failure. If I were to take a poll here tonight and just said, what do you know Peter did? Probably at the top of the list, what would pop up is that he denied Jesus three times. Um, even if we were just go in, into, the, into the streets and just ask people who don't know much about the Bible, this is the most popular thing about Peter. And I think that's super sad. Like, I, would, I wouldn't want to be known for my greatest failure. I hope you don't want to be known for your greatest failure. And, and, and here he is, like... It, it, in the scriptures, we have this story where he does fail, um, and it happens at, at uh, right at the story of the crucifixion. So what happens is he's in their upper room with Peter and his disciples, Jesus, and he, he establishes the Lord's Supper. This is what we celebrate every single time we gather on a weekend as a church because it's that significant. It's Everything hinges right here on the covenant that Jesus is creating with us, his people, and himself at his table. And, and it's at that same gathering that then he tells Peter, um, actually, you're going to deny me um, before this is all said and done. And Peter, again, he's quick to just say what he thinks. And he's like, no, no way am I going to deny you. I would rather die than deny you. Are you kidding me, Jesus? After all we've been through, like the last three years we've been traveling together and I've seen all the things I've seen. I'm not going to deny, deny you. I would rather die. And Jesus tells him, surely you will, and, and it's all going to happen before you hear the rooster crow. And that's the setup. Then as soon as 
the time at the upper room ends, then they go to the garden, then the, the Roman soldiers arrive, then they take him through this like totally fake trial thing, and that's ultimately going to lead towards the beating of Jesus and then the crucifixion of Jesus. But in that season of the trial, um, trials at this time were very public, okay? So it's happening in the city. It's like, the, um, and we're in the terrible hours in the middle of the night, and yet there are crowds. So this is like a hustle and bustle of like, everyone knows this is happening. This, this is a, a major event happening in the city. And in that scuffle of, of being in the courtyard and hearing what's going on with the trial, here's what happens. Matthew 26, now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said, but he denied it before all of them, before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway where another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, Surely you're the, you are one of them. Your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Matthew doesn't waste words. He could have just told us that he wept. He's painting a picture for us of what's happening in Peter. He goes outside and he weeps bitterly. When Peter's in the heat of the moment, like if, if I try to put myself in his shoes, Jesus just told me, that I'm going to deny him. And I'm like, no, I'm not going to deny you. And then I deny him once. And then another person comes and I deny him again. Like, it's just so interesting. Don't you think that like somewhere in there, he also felt the tension of like, oh my gosh, I think I'm doing the very thing I don't want to do. He's living inside that conflict himself. And I think what shows that he is living in, in that conflict is you see his anger start to rise inside of him. And this is just so true of the way it is for us in our failures. It's like we fail in one thing, and instead of just acknowledging it and then running towards Jesus, we somehow create this snowball effect of just like, let's just keep this thing going. And I get more angry. I get more bitter. I start hurting more people. That snowball leads towards more and more destructive things. And, and if only we could have that rooster crow earlier. And, and that rooster crow is the moment when you realize what you've done. And that is, that is a moment that, that leads towards weeping bitterly, but it's still a grace of God. It's still God being kind to you because what he did is he stopped the snowball. So for any time you hear a sermon or a podcast or a song or a conversation, anything that God uses as a rooster crow in your life, we don't shove that away. We say, God, thank you. Thank you that I, I now see it. I'm not just going to keep this snowball going. I now see it, and we can stop it. And that's what the rooster crow was for Peter. And he weeps bitterly. You think, you think he weeps bitterly because he thinks, oh, God's not going to forgive me for this? No. He, he knew Jesus' heart. He knew God would forgive him. He's not weeping because he thinks he blew it forever. He weeps bitterly 
because he understands what he just did to his friend. He understands the gravity, the pain of what he just did to God. Not just around God. He did this to God. And we have to get to the place of grieving our sin appropriately. We're never going to get there if you don't even understand that your sin is first committed to God. It, it offends God before it offended anyone else. In, in Psalm 51, what we have is uh, David, the psalmist, his confession after he had sinned. And he had sinned with Bathsheba. He had murdered. He had done all these terrible things. And this is his song that he wrote coming back to God in Psalm 51. And you'll see this verse where he says, against you and you only have I sinned. That's not David being factually accurate. Obviously, he had sinned in such a way that it brought destruction upon many people. But what he's getting at is this. If you don't acknowledge that you've sinned towards God, you can't make anything else right. It starts here. It starts with us understanding that our failures offend God. And Peter sees his failure, his denying of Jesus, which before we're too hard on Peter, just so you know, all of us, before we believed in Jesus, what we did is we denied Jesus. We did not acknowledge him for who he was. And so it's not like, oh, man, I'd never do that. Actually, we have all have. And, and, and if you believe in Jesus, by the grace of God, we're not in that place anymore. But it's not something far off that we can't relate to. And, and he denies him, but then he understands, I did that to God. I sinned against God. And that's why, that's why he weeps bitterly. And uh, Paul is getting at the same point when he writes to the Corinthians. I love, I love these couple of verses in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 where he says, Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, this is 2 Corinthians, so he's referring to 1 Corinthians, to all the things he calls them out on in the first book. He's like, even if, if I brought you sorrow by my letter, I don't regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I'm happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. We live in a time where we're running away from sorrow. We build our whole lives to say, I never want to experience grief. And what God is saying and what Paul had to do with the Corinthians, he's saying, actually, there's an appropriate place for sorrow. And when we fail God, when we sin against God, there is a process of grieving that. But it's, it's just one step in the process. It's not the end game. I would say it this way. Grieving sin is part of the process, not the punishment. Not the punishment. Jesus dies so that you don't have to have the punishment. But grieving it is the appropriate response when you realize what you've done against God and when you realize all the other people you've hurt along the way. You grieve it as, as one step in the process, not the punishment. This is where I think I've heard sermons during the course of my lifetime, and I just think they get this thing wrong. Okay, you can hear a whole sermon just pressing people on like, you've sinned against God. Feel the weight of your sin. Feel the weight of your sin. And if that's all you give people, that's not the message of the gospel. It's one step and you need to get there. And if you view the things you've done towards God as just like, ah, eh, not a big a deal. You really don't get it yet. You have to grieve it. You have to understand the severity of, of your failure and how it's offensive to God. But it's just one step and it's not the punishment. I'm not going to stay in that grieving space. 
I'm not going to live here because it's not my punishment. Jesus took on the punishment for me. This is just me going through the process of getting to, just like Paul said, I'm actually kind of happy that you were sad about this because it led you to repentance. Repentance is the point where things start to change in your life by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not just saying, oh, yes, God, I see something that I did wrong. It's like, and now I'm not going to do that anymore. That's called repentance. And that doesn't happen through your own strength. It happens with your yes to God and in partnership only with the power of the Holy Spirit. Can we repent? And I can tell you guys, this is real. <laughs> you, can, you can repent. There are things that you say, I don't know if I can ever let this go. If it's dishonoring to God, if it's sin, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you, the answer is yes, you can let that go because repentance exists. And again, repentance has this negative vibe today. As you talk about repentance, you kind of envision someone like whipping their back and like, hurting themselves like that's the space of repentance that's not at all how scripture presents it in the book of acts we're told that times of refreshing come through repentance the thing that we're so thirsty for is not to just never be sad what we're thirsty for is for change and if your heart changes you will experience a refreshing in your soul like you've never had it before that's how the bible paints the picture and repentance is not penance repentance is not penance penance is you paying the price so that then you can get what you want from god this isn't how he operates it's the it's the path towards refreshing it's not you being all sad forever for the rest of your life and just beating yourself up that's not what god's getting at with repentance it's beautiful it's awesome so now let's all just get to the place where we realize okay we got to grieve sin but grieve it appropriately but let's bring to mind what you think would be your greatest failure before God. Not, we're not going to share this with anyone tonight. This is just between you and God. I'm bringing it up to mind right now too, okay? What would be your greatest failure before God? And I just want to ask you two questions to protect you from two extremes that you could have in your mind when it comes to your greatest failure before God. I would ask you, have you grieved what you've done before God? Because if as you look at the, what you did in whatever way that was, and you know it was sin because it, it didn't meet, meet God's standard and it hurt a bunch of people, whatever that story is for you, did you only grieve the fact that it hurt other people, but you never got to a place where you understood that it grieved God? That's one question. But I also want to protect you from the other extreme. And maybe, yes, you did feel that grief before God and you felt the severity of it, but I would ask you, are you letting that grief keep you from the grace of God? Are you letting that failure that you're bringing up to mind be so big that it's kind of becoming God? It's dictating things to you. It's telling you what your story is. It's telling you who you are. And if that's the voice it has in your life, it's in the way of the grace of God. God doesn't speak those names over you. You speak them over yourself. And the enemy speaks them over you. So don't, don't end up in either of those extremes. The, the, the path of, of redemption that God lays before us is, I understand that what I did, it was I sinned against God. But now I'm ready to move on into the next thing, which is what God offers, which is his grace. That's the invitation of Jesus. He's saying, it's okay for you to be human, and I want you to grieve your sin appropriately, but then I want you to get to experience my grace. Experience the grace of of God. I'm just going to give you uh, fast forward a bit here in the life of Peter. He had just lived through his greatest failure. 
okay? His greatest failure on the day Jesus gets crucified. And it doesn't involve God giving up on Peter right there. That's not the end of his story. It doesn't stop at his greatest failure. It continues from there, and then Jesus dies, and then he, he's resurrected on the third day. And what you'll find is that the resurrected Jesus is having a one-on-one conversation with Peter in the days following his resurrection. That's the Jesus we worship. It's your greatest failure. We think, okay, God's done. I'm out. I gave it a shot. I'm done. And Jesus is saying, no, no, no. I'm still here. I'm still willing. I'm still ready because Jesus sees something in you that's in the making. He doesn't just see a failure. And he sees that in Peter. He's saying, Peter, I see something in the making. So that's where he has a conversation with him about feed my sheep. And I won't teach that tonight, but it's like this awesome conversation that Jesus now has with him. And then Jesus ascends into heaven. And then they're just sitting there waiting for what's next. I, let's just rewind a bit. I want us to, as much as we can today in 2023, can we like try to put ourselves a little bit in the emotional space of what that might have been like? to live in those days. Again, we're all Peter. We, we just spent three years with Jesus, and at first it was like, okay, we're following him, and things are going good. Oh, that's some interesting things. Uh, I don't know what that means, okay? And then he told his story, don't know what that means. Like, all these things start happening, then you're like, oh my goodness. Like, this is, this is the Messiah. Like, it's him, and, and, and that starts to hit, and then you start seeing him do some pretty crazy things, like calm a storm, um, heal people left and right. Then you start seeing all these crowds swarm to him. Then you start seeing more healings and more things. I mean, they are witnessing the arrival of the kingdom in real time. And they do this for three years and they're with him and they're with him in the good and with him in the bad and all those things. Have you ever spent three years like every day with someone? That creates a bond. That, that's what you call true friendship. And, and Peter's one of the 12, yes, but he's also one of the three. There are a few times in the, in the Gospels where it's like Peter, James, and John are kind of like also with Jesus. It, it would appear to be that they had an even closer relationship with Jesus. And he's in that, in that friend group with Jesus in it and, and talking with him. And he's the one who speaks those words saying, you're, you're the Messiah, you're that person. And then Jesus takes them up into this room and has a conversation about how he's about to die and, and give up his life. And, and then, you know, all these things that, that are torn down, he's going to raise it back up in three days. And everyone's trying to just figure out what is going on. Then they go into this garden, and then Jesus is arrested. And he's tried, and he's beaten. And then just like that, in a matter of a day, Peter is standing there, and you're looking at Jesus, and he's dying. And then he dies. He actually dies. The person that we're saying, hey, we're banking everything on this guy, he dies in front of us. And then he's buried. You want to talk about quiet three days. What is going on in those three days? Everyone's asking the same question, probably not out loud, but they're asking it in their hearts. They're asking, was it all fake? Was any of the things he talked about real? (laughs) Was he really who he said he was? And then comes the resurrection. And he, he walks out of that tomb. And Peter's one of the first to find out. He, he's like, I got to go see this. I got to go know if this is true. And he lives through the emotions of his greatest failures and then only to see the resurrected Christ embrace him and bring him closer as the good shepherd that he is. Then he spends time with him. And then Jesus 
ascends into heaven again, leaving them. And he promises, he says, hey, I'm going to send to you a comforter. I'm going to send you my own spirit. He's the God three in one, Father, Spirit, Son. And he said, I'm going to send you my spirit, the Holy Spirit. But you have to wait. You have to wait. And somewhere around a month and a half goes by in this waiting period. And I just want, like, like envision living in Jerusalem at this time. Someone just got murdered in front of a crowd. Then his body goes missing. And then all his followers are go, go missing too. They're all waiting for something that's supposed to come. I just think in those days it would have just been a really quiet few weeks. Like not, not much going on in the street and just wondering, is, is this going to happen? Is it real? And then the Holy Spirit shows up. At Pentecost... The Holy Spirit shows up, and here's the descriptions we're given. He shows up like a violent wind, and uh, it, there's, there's tongues of fire on everyone's head, and everyone starts speaking in different tongues, and everyone's freaking out, is what the Bible says, in different translations. But every, everyone's freaking out, like, what in the world is going on? What are we supposed to do? And the crowd just asks a general question what are we supposed to do right now and God God raises up a voice to speak and to answer that question and you would have thought it was the voice that had lost that opportunity God says and he looks at Peter and he says Peter I know how I made you and it's time it's time for you to speak again it's time for you to show my holiness in your humanity. And in Acts chapter 2, Peter replies, and he says to the people who are all confused in what's happening, he says, here's what you need to know. Here's what you need to do. You need to repent. You need to be baptized. Every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God with, will call. Can you feel like how Peter would have been saying? He's saying for all who are far off. Peter's saying for all the people who are like me. I'm that person. I'm the one who's far off. And he's now standing in front of thousands of people as the picture of holiness in humanity. You want to tell me some of these people didn't see him in the streets when he denied Jesus? These are the same people. We're still in Jerusalem. They saw the failure and now they're seeing the grace of God living inside of this person. So here's a lesson. God is bigger than your greatest failure. God's bigger than that. And like I said, there's something maybe that you've given up and it's somewhere around this category of you're still sitting in step two of this message and God's ready for you to step into step three. It's time for you to say, yes, I acknowledge what's happened. I, I, I've grieved what I've done. But I'm ready to experience the, the grace of God. Guys, the grace of God is a gift, meaning you don't earn it. And even if you hadn't committed that failure, you still wouldn't have earned God's grace. God's saying, it's up to me to give it, so don't tell me who I can give it to and who not. If he wants to give it to you, 
All you have to do is receive it. And I just believe so much in my heart that there are things that God has made in you that maybe even were weaknesses that led towards failure, that led, towards, that led you even towards sin, and maybe even led you towards your greatest failure before God. But I want you to stop seeing a failed store. I want you to see the Macy's in the making. God is doing something in you. And you don't have to get to the end of the story today. All you have to ask is, God, can I step into your grace right now? And the very thing that you thought was your weakness, <laughs> that might be the power of God ready in you. The thing that you thought, God could never use this, that's God saying, that's exactly where I want to use it. I'm ready. But are you? Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your kindness. Your kindness is what leads us to repentance. It's not your anger. <laughs> it's not your justice. It's your kindness. You're just such a kind God to us that when we fail over and over again, you step in and you say, look at what I can do with your failure. It's not on us, God, and that's why we're so thankful. The balance of the universe isn't on us. It's not even in our choices. It's on you. You're the one who stands above it all. You're the one that we worship. And this is why we're so thankful that holiness can live in our humanity because of the work of your Holy Spirit. That while we were waiting for the Spirit, we would no longer have to wait. Your Spirit is here. Your Spirit is in us because we have believed in your Son, Jesus Christ, and the work that he has done. We are now filled and empowered by that same Spirit. That same power that raised him from the dead and now he walks in newness of life. We walk in newness of life. We're the dead people and now we're the resurrected people. And so God, we ask that your spirit would fill us afresh. That we would see the ways that we have failed you. That we would grieve it appropriately. But God, that we would now enter into the power of what you want to do through us. God, we're willing. We're ready. We have open hands and open hearts and say, would you do it? Because on Pentecost, your spirit came and the church was born. And we're living in that same church here today. So we ask God, would you continue the work of the spirit here? Would you move? Would you convict? Would you call? Would you draw us to yourself? Would you give us another chance? Help us experience your grace more and more. And we'll give you all the praise for it. For you're the only one who's worthy, God. And so we pray and we praise. We ask and now we declare that you are worthy. You're the one that we worship. You're the one that we praise. Jesus, receive our adoration here tonight. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Come on, let's stand and sing.